Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. Thank you so much for all of your messages. We read every single email, every single social media message. We're a little behind right now in responding. At least I can speak for myself and say that I am way behind in responding to everyone because we are feverishly working on our book that is due this Friday. So after that, we'll have some good catch-up time. But I do want you to know that even when we are in the thick of it, we're reading every message and really appreciate it. If you are enjoying The Nuanced Life or Pantsuit Politics, our other podcasts, we hope that you will take a second to rate and review them on the Apple Podcast Player and to share them with your friends and family. We're really trying to grow the community around the shows. Today, we are going to do some feedback on our sex episode and then talk about money, which is probably the only conversation that worries me more in my own marriage than sex does, Sarah. (laughs) Well, what we learned from our sex conversation is that we didn't even begin to scratch the surface. I think that actually could be a 55-part series if we were up for it because... We got so many messages that were like, yes, yes, yes. Also, this list of 15 things I'd like to talk about as well. Someone tweeted that she knows we're busy, but we actually need a third podcast that's just about sex. And I will (laughs) say that I do have more to say about sex than about stuff. So if we're going to go for a multi-part series, (laughs) I feel better about this topic. Especially because we really only barely mentioned sort of the hormonal and physical issues that impact sex. And a lot of y'all wrote in to us about that. And maybe we could get some actual doctors, <laughs> physical experts on the show to talk about that at a later, later date, because I do know it's, it's so, so essential in this conversation. It's essential, and it's something that we don't talk about enough. We heard from several men who really appreciated the discussion, and I think that part of what we're realizing is that as women, we just don't communicate the sort of dark side of this whole experience for us. I think especially when we're in loving relationships, loving and long-term relationships, maybe it gets harder as you go to be open and honest about this hurts. I don't feel up to it. Here's what's going on in my body. I don't know. But it seems to me that especially people who are in committed relationships are hungry for more of this discussion. 
Yeah, we heard from one listener who talked about the difference between struggling with an issue inside the sexual relationship and sort of the damage it did to the relationship as opposed to a current relationship in which she feels like she has a healthy and open line of communications about anything that happened within the sexual relationship and just the difference that can make. Also, so I found this article. I mean, I feel like we stopped recording and somebody was like, read, or I found this on Facebook or something, but it, it definitely made the rounds on the internet, which was an article in The Week by Lily Loofborough called The Female Price of Male Pleasure. And it was so phenomenal. In part, she really goes after the idea of bad sex and what bad sex means to women and what bad sex means to men, the part that really struck me. She says, as for bad sex, University of Michigan professor Sarah McClellan, another one of the few scholars who has done rigorous work on this issue, discovered in the course of her research on how young men and women rate sexual satisfaction that men and women imagined a very different low end of the sexual satisfaction scale, while women imagined the low end to include the potential for extremely negative feelings and the potential for pain. Men imagined the low end to represent the potential for less satisfying sexual outcomes, but they never imagined harmful or damaging outcomes for themselves. Once you've observed how horrifying this is, you might reasonably conclude that our reckoning over sexual assault and harassment has suffered because men and women have entirely different rating scales. An 8 on a man's bad sex scale is like a 1 on a woman's. This tendency for men and women to use the term bad sex to describe experiences an objective observer would categorize as vastly different is the flip side of a known psychological phenomenon called relative deprivation, by which disenfranchised groups, having been trained to expect little, tend paradoxically to report the same levels of satisfaction as their better-treated, more-privileged peers. That was so huge, and I can hear all the hallelujahs because I think that that is... It is the truth. It is the it is the God's honest truth. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to be able to talk about what good sex is for women instead mm. of just how can this not be a horrifying experience anymore? How can we ensure that people like we got a message from a listener who said, I am so happy that this conversation is happening, but also we have got to say more to men than make sure that you have her consent. Come on. And I thought that was such a good point. Like the whole message to men about sex has been make sure you have her consent and be careful because now that's getting harder. Right. And then beyond that, it's like, enjoy yourself. The end. It's crazy. I mean, we are just clawing ourselves up from the bottom. You know, like we are just trying to eke out anything. Range. Yeah. <laughs> then eke out the better of this is terrible to like this is not so bad. This is why I maintain that Channing Tatum and Magic Mike, particularly the second one, is a dang revolutionary act. Because that movie, which I told you to watch when we were going to talk about sex. Did you get to watch it, Beth? I have not watched it yet. Oh, back me up here, people. So Magic Mike 1 is nice. It's good. It's very interesting. It's about Channing Tatum's life pretty much when he was a stripper in Orlando. It's fine. It's interesting. Okay, but then, like, Magic Mike 2 is what Magic everybody thought Magic Mike 1 was going to be. Like... It is so feminist. It is basically like the only thing that matters is female pleasure. It is not a universal experience. Women experience pleasure different ways. Women want pleasure in different ways. And the best way to figure out what a woman wants is to ask her and then listen. Like even when they opened Magic Mike in Vegas, which I desperately want to go to, they did this great commercial in which he's like, Listen, women have ha- men have had strip clothes forever, but we just didn't want to make them. But we don't know what you want, so we're just asking you to tell us what you want. Stop it, Channing Tatum. I love you so much. I love that movie. I really do feel like it's a revolutionary film. Yeah, I think pleasure needs to be defined 
broadly and individually as well, right? Because what I do not want is to be in a world or in a marriage where orgasm is a definition of pleasure. I'm just tired of that pressure, right? That to me is so stressful. And I think we need to have within our marriages and maybe with as a society, like a discussion about, for me, really good sex is sex that happens all day where there's just kind of a constant flirtation and an expression of interest in each other. And some of that interest is physical and some of it's not physical, but where you're kind of working your way in the direction of what we talk about as sex through the arc of the day, you know? At first I thought you meant actual sex all day and that just made me so tired to even think of. But I get what you're saying. That makes me tired too. It used to not make me tired. That makes me very tired now. But like, I think just that expression of interest creates a ton of pleasure, right? And I don't need the pressure of like, okay, we've had nothing to do with each other all day long and now we're going to have sex and we have to make sure that we both orgasm. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, that makes me exhausted. I feel that. I feel that. We also got some really good feedback about the mentioning of the Esther Perel podcast from one of our listeners, Megan, and she said, the Esther Perel episode on same-sex couples came up again this in this week's Nuanced Life as a counter to heteronormative sexual dynamics, and I wanted to push back on that idea. Even within same-sex couples, heteronormative gender dynamics can be part of the water. I found that the problem is in Perel's same-sex couple counseling session fell very directly along traditional gender lines, right up to devaluing the traditionally female responsibility of childcare and the breadwinner being more sexually assertive put out by her partner's lack of interest. I agree listening to people with different experiences is important, but I also agree that there is much more that unites and divides us. And unfortunately, sometimes that includes the perpetuation of norms in areas you think would be free of such constraints. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I think it's hard to leave traditional gender dynamics behind no matter what kind of relationship you're in because they're just so pervasive and so deeply embedded in us culturally. All right, next up, we are going to talk about money. Money, 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 money. Can we just start? Can I just start singing for all the transitions in our show? Is that allowed? I was thinking more about the Jesse J song. Do you know Price Tag? Uh-uh. Everybody look to their left. Everybody yeah. Look to their right. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. So now everybody bop along with us. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about money. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss so this started we talked about it last week and then talking about money that is and then I listened to an amazing series on death sex and money which is a fabulous podcast called opportunity cost in which they really talked in particular about class And I think it was so interesting and such an important conversation because what class you grow up in, how you change classes, is such a part of the background of your ideas about money. So we thought we'd begin this conversation talking about our own sort of histories with money and class growing up to Kentucky girls for as a limited perspective as we can provide. Beth, you want to start? 
Sure. So I grew up in western Kentucky, a couple hours away from where Sarah lives, on a dairy farm. My parents both went to college. My grandmother and grandfather on my dad's side of the family also both went to college. So that was part of our family identity by the time I rolled around. My dad was a loan officer right out of school, and my mom stayed at home with me. And then he decided to go back to the family farm to work with his dad. So he did that for any number of years and then eventually sold the farm when I was in college, ran for office, and he is now the judge executive of my home county. So growing up, my parents really did a fantastic job of not making money a central theme in our family, regardless of what the conditions were with money. And because for a long time, the only income in my family was the family farm, I understand as an adult that sometimes those conditions were much easier than others. And that there were some times when money was very, very stressful for my parents, but they really did not send that message to me. They also sent the message to me that stuff is just stuff and it's not important. And my mom made a lot of my clothes growing up. My family was never about keeping up with anyone else. And I really think now as an adult about what a fun and happy childhood I was given on a very sometimes stressful for my family budget. And I am in awe of my parents' ability to have faith through the difficult periods that things were going to work out. Both my parents work extremely hard. My mom started teaching again when I was in second grade, and she never left school at school, and the farm was a constant, you know, seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day kind of job. And so I got a lot from my parents about work ethic, but I didn't get much from them about money other than it's not going to be the center of your life. So that's kind of the start in life that I was given. I found it interesting in the beginning conversation about our class background that you started with, whether or not your family members had college educations. Do you think that's interesting? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of all of it, right? Because I've always had a little bit of resistance to hearing people's comments on agriculture because I think like, I've always been really proud of the fact that my dad and his father ran a farm with college degrees. And I think that they ran it like a small business. And I I get sort of frustrated by the caricature out there about farmers and agriculture, because it is an incredibly difficult thing to run a small family farm and has gotten harder and harder over time. And I think that that education was really important to my family farm surviving as long as it did, as long as it has. What would you have considered yourself, like which class would you have considered yourself a member of growing up? I think I would have said that we were middle class, but I didn't really understand how wide a range middle class can mean until I left the county that I grew up in. In the county I grew up in, we were certainly a middle class and on probably the more comfortable end of middle class because my parents owned so much land or someone in my family owned so much land. But then when I went to college, I realized, wow, like there are people here who would call themselves middle class that have a lot more money than we ever have and who care a lot more about money than we ever did. Yeah, that's true. So what class do you consider yourself a member of now? 
I still think of myself as middle class. And, you know, we're kind of in transition in my house because I would have said last year that we were on the very high end of middle class for our age and income. Part of that is because I had just taken one of those surveys about, like, where are you, you know, in American society. But now, you know, I don't know. I think we're probably pretty solid in the middle of middle class since I don't have a steady income anymore. And that's been kind of an interesting thing to work my way through. So my family, I grew up in Western Kentucky, obviously. My family does not have a history of college education. So my father's side of the family, it is my uncle and I are the only two that have college educations. I think that's right. And then I'm the only one that has an advanced degree. On my mother's side of the family, the current generation, like my cousins, almost all have college educations, whereas I'm still the only one on my other side of the family of my cousins who has a college education. My cousins have a college education, but it's predominantly the females in my mother's side of the family that have college educations, and they all went back in adulthood. So my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my great-aunt by marriage all went back to college after, like, in their late 30s. And my mother, excuse me, and my mother. My other great-aunt did go directly to college and became a teacher, but everybody else sort of went back. I was, like, the first, besides my one great-aunt, the first person to, like, kind of do it in the right order and just go through college and get a degree. There are several members of my family, because they're all educators who have master's degrees, but I'm the only one with a law degree and an advanced degree. So as much as education as is indicative of class. So my father and my mother divorced when I was three, And I think they would both tell you that they were very poor. When my mother was single, she was very poor. And then she was, uh, I mean, I think she was on assistance for a while. I know she definitely had housing assistance in the house we lived in when she first met my stepfather. Uh, Divorce is like the number one predictor of women's poverty level, and my mother was no different. And then my stepfather, my stepfather and my father do not have college educations. So they both... My stepfather was a salesman. My dad is a mortgage uh, mortgage loan officer. And so my stepfather came from very, very poor beginnings. His father was in the military, but there was four of them. And he grew up all four kids in a house that's like 800 square feet. And so he came from sort of low income as well. And then him and my mother both changed careers. So my mother went back to school and became a media specialist, like she's, a.k.a. a librarian, but they have fancy names now. And then my stepfather sold insurance door-to-door, and then he became a real estate agent. So I think that was super influential as far as how I, how I viewed money and how I thought about careers. And that I, I had both of my sort of primary caregivers say, I don't want to do this anymore. This doesn't make me happy. I'm going to try something different way into adulthood. And I grew up knowing that my I remember my parents not having money. I remember feeling like I definitely didn't have money in comparison to a lot of my friends. I, But both my father and my mother and my stepfather's sort of class changed dramatically, along with a lot of Americans in the sort of the late 90s, early aughts. And they both sort of raged their class level. Whereas like when I think when I was a kid, I was definitely like lower middle class, if middle class at all. And then by the time I graduated college, obviously, we were definitely upper middle class. And then, you know, I would I would categorize myself, since both my husband and I have advanced degrees, you know, we both live in, you know, we now live in nicer houses than our parents, which is kind of, you know, I think it's what parents want, but it's also kind of weird. 
So I think we would, you know, we definitely, based on our earning capacity and advanced degrees, would be in much higher classes than we either of us were born into. Although Nicholas's family has a much higher sort of class, <laughs> higher class background. They've all have his parents all have like a cabillion degrees, as do his grandparents. But it's just it's so fascinating. I think when you scoot back, because I, I feel like I've had conversations about money. With my parents, not as not as my mom and my stepfather are just both spenders and they're very like, you can't take it with you kind of people. But they, I mean, I feel like we talked about money and we, I thought about money and I understood when there was money and I understood when there wasn't money. But class was like a totally different thing. I'm not sure we, I ever thought about and I ever really sort of zoomed out and looked at how that influenced things and looked at what that meant and how it sort of influenced how I thought about money, how I thought about education. And when you start to see that and you sort of start to see how it affects so much in our society down to our personal lives, it's really kind of mind-blowing. And I think back when I definitely felt that growing up. I felt that I was different. Mainly I was the only, I was one of very few kids, probably the only kid in my direct social circle whose parents were divorced. Now they all got divorced out of high school, but mine was the only mom who was like, I'm not going to push, I'm not going to wait. Let's just do this now. We're not working out, which I'm so glad she did. But I already felt different from that. And then there were, I had a lot of friends whose parents made a lot more money than mine. And, you know, I felt that. I noticed it. And I don't think I felt less than, but I definitely felt different. I definitely noticed it and felt felt the impact of that growing up as an adolescent. And it's not like and it's so much different even now. You know, like I say that, but I didn't have a single friend with a stay at home mom growing up. Not a single one. Every single friend I had mothers worked. Now, most of them were teachers. And we had I had one friend whose mom was a beautician, but like everybody worked. Whereas now I look at Griffin and my kids and it's like they have so many friends whose moms are stay at home moms, which is, you know, that's definitely a privileged position for a lot of people. I wonder how that will affect them, and I wonder how money plays a role in how they see our family. It's just, it's, a t- it's intense, man. It's really intense. I really did become aware in college of money. Oh, yeah, money no, that is true. In a, That's so in true. a really different way. We went to college with some really, really rich kids. <laughs> some really, really rich kids, and it always made me aware of the fact that, like, I was there because of scholarships and financial aid. I became an RA as a sophomore to get my room and board paid for, you know, and just it really did start to affect my decision making in college. When I think about the arc of my life, though, a lot of things have fallen into place for me that just don't happen for a lot of people. So my parents are still married to each other. They never told me I couldn't participate in something because they couldn't afford it, even when I am sure that it had to have been stressful for them in ways that they've never talked to me about. I went to this college that we couldn't afford as a family, but I managed to get scholarships and and loans and a combination of things that made it work. In college, I was able to improve my scholarships and, and be an RA and so ease the burden there. I got scholarships for law school in connection with student loans. And then coming out of law school, I experienced a real meritocracy in a way that so few people get to experience it. When I think about the fact that coming out of law school, I got offers from very good firms within our region, really the best firms within our regions. I had offers from all of them. I did not have lawyers in my family. I did not have connections in the cities where those firms were. My name didn't mean anything. Like, 
That kind of thing is so rare. It blows my mind looking back that I had those opportunities because so few people get those opportunities solely on the basis of their grades. And that's what happened for me. That also created for me an enormous sense of imposter syndrome. I'll never forget my first day walking into the law firm where I took my job as a summer associate. You know, it's in this building with 26 floors and escalators everywhere, and it just looks totally different than anything I grew up around. And I get on the elevator, and everybody's suits are expensive, and everybody has a Starbucks and a leather bag with a brand name that I knew I would never be able to afford, right? And I just stood there, and it was almost like I could see myself, like, zooming out to the whole state of Kentucky, and then, like, to the whole United States of America, and then to the whole Earth, and then, like, the galaxy, and thinking, (laughs) like, God is out there somewhere looking down and saying, she does not fit here. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, my law school experience, I think, I mean, if you take what we went through at Transy, like multiply by five, because with love, there's like rich kids in Kentucky and then there's rich oh, yeah. kids in the Northeast. Like, it's like a totally different ballgame, <laughs> my ball friends. Game. It is a different ball game, And I learned a lot. And I'm not saying that, you know. It, it was just so interesting to see the different relationship to money that my friends in law school had. Not everybody was just rolling in it. We all, many of us took out crazy loans. My parents paid for college. I didn't have any loans. And then I ruined it by going to law school and then deciding I didn't want to be a lawyer to pay them all off. So I still got those hot loans hanging out there. And so it was really interesting to see sort of the different levels of wealth and, and what that meant in people's relationship to one another. I worked on political campaigns in which I'll never forget one of my professors ran for office and I went to a fundraiser for him at a couple's house, a very lovely couple with like pictures of them and the Kennedys and them and Elvis and them and all these people around. It was like on Central Park. I mean, we're talking like a 5,000 square foot apartment on Central Park looking out over Central Park. It was like on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And I just thought like, man, there's just like this whole other universe out here that so many people never see that where there's a different language, there's a different way of being and relating to one another. Money is a different thing. And it's it's very eye opening. And I've definitely definitely had that at several points in my life where I'm like, oh, OK, OK. But then and I think that that continued during my time in Washington, D.C. And just meeting people and being around people where I thought like, this is just a whole different level. What's funny is that I never, I felt that, I felt imposter syndrome as far as sort of like skills and jobs where I'm like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm supposed to know. But I never felt that with regards to wealth. Like I never felt, I've, I'm totally fascinated by incredibly wealthy people, but I'm not intimidated by them. I don't feel, it's, I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know um, why, but I don't feel that. I feel, I feel imposter syndrome for sure, but it's just in different areas. Yeah, it's been the opposite for me. I have always felt very secure in my work ethic and my skills. And I think I get that from my mom and dad. Like, I know that no one is going to think more about their work than I think about my work. And I know that I can bring value. I'm intense about that. And I want to make sure I am bringing value all the time. But But I'm confident in those abilities. My imposter syndrome has always been more cultural. Like, I don't have access to that language or I don't look the part or... 
I'm just not interested in the same kinds of things. Like, I hate a happy hour more than anything on earth. <laughs> you know, there are just a, there are a lot of conversations. I don't want to talk about wine. You know, like, they're just all <laughs> these things that that put me on a different plane. And some of that, too, is just that's how I've made decisions. And so all through college, it was kind of like everything I love to do is impossible to get paid well for. I love to sing. I love to write poems. I love to read books. I love to think deep thoughts. Like, And I never believed that I would be able to make a living doing those things. And I also remember people saying things to me when I was growing up, like, you're too smart to be a teacher. You're too smart Mm. to do X, Y, or Z. And what they meant, I know, and I know they meant it with love, was that I should make more money than that, right? You're smart enough to have an easier life. That's yep. It all came from this wonderful, loving place. But it meant that I have constantly been saying, well, I really love this, but I can teach myself to do that and make a lot more money. And so I think I am kind of working my way out of a place of real resentment of money because I felt like I took a job that I knew I didn't love in a place where I didn't belong. I added value, but I didn't belong. And I stayed for so long because of money. And I question all the time every decision I make because of money. Hmm. That's so interesting because I feel so I don't I, I love grades. I was valedictorian. I love getting good grades. I love a check plus. I love an A plus. I love all the things. Now I will say that I'm a little bit different in that I'm not a perfectionist. Like I want to exert the influence or the amount of energy needed to just get the A. I'm not trying to kill myself, so in which there's no scenario, I don't get an A+. That's my husband. I also believe that's how you are. I'm not like that. Like, I just want to do enough to get me there. I'm not looking to go above and beyond. And we can call that bad work ethic, whatever you want to call it, but that's just how I am. And so with money, I just always felt sort of neutral. I think, you know, I my parents changed jobs to do something they enjoyed, but also to do something that was more financially fulfilling, too, so I knew it was important. I knew it made your life easier. I'm not mad at money. Like, I always want more money. Money's great. But I never felt the – I also kind of got the idea that, like, I'm not going to come out the box being able to do what I love and get paid a lot of money for it. So I'll just – I don't know what I thought. I'll just wing it. I don't really know what I thought. I think so much of it, though, is less about what my parents told me and more about the fact that I met Nicholas at 19 – who is obsessed with money in a good way, like not in a, I'm going to, but like very, this sounds so terrible and anti-feminist, but I sort of kind of thought like, I know he's worrying about it enough for the both of us. You know what I mean? Well, I was going to ask you how much of it was Nicholas, because I don't know if you remember this. The last time I saw you before we started doing Pansy Politics was at Transylvania on an alumni weekend. And we were in the chapter room of our sorority And we were talking about having gone to law school and what we were going to do afterward. And I told you that I was going to the firm I was going to. And then you said, I'm not doing that. Nicholas sold out so I wouldn't have to. Oh, you're going to have to edit this episode so Nicholas doesn't hear that. I do not remember saying that, but I'm not surprised. My (laughs) husband has this ongoing joke. He says that I have a long con going, that I'm just like hanging out with him until my law school loans are paid off. And that's why he always wants to make the minimum payment because he's afraid if he pays them off too quick, I'll be like, I'm out of here. I And he said this to me. He was like, a long time ago, he said, you know, a job to me, I don't live to work. He's like, I just work to live. Like, I just want to do the job and get paid and go home. I'm not trying to turn this into a passion project or my life's work. He just see, he, because his parents 
both did what felt very differently about their jobs and sort of stayed at jobs. I don't think they disliked them, but like they just they had a very different narrative in their home about what why work was important and what kind of like whether how much fulfillment you should get out of your work. Let's put it that way. And you can see that play out in our relationship over and over and over again. And like 300 percent my earning capacity job choices would have been different had I not been with somebody who like sort of went to law school and went straight to the high earning paycheck immediately. Now, I will say I supported us when we lived in North Carolina for our first year of marriage. I worked and he was a law student, just so that's clear. But like, you know, I just totally I'm not surprised I said that. Not surprised I said that. Chad is the same way in terms of this is not a passion project. It is a way to earn a living and the rest of my life is outside of my career. Mm. I, I, God love the people who are like that. That's not me. Mm-hmm. And I think the hardest part for me was spending so much of my adult life. I mean, the last 11 years have been me trying to convince myself that I could be that person. And it just didn't work. And so then I thought, well, let me try to repackage this different ways. So I don't, I'm not going to practice law anymore, but I'm going to do this HR yeah, thing. Yeah, real talk. Firm. How many like versions did you go through? A million different versions. I tried different practice areas, I tried different jobs, I kept scaling back. Because, you know, I'm not motivated by money at all. It's this great paradox for me. Money doesn't motivate me one lick. But because I feel it is so important to the people that I care about, it has been the defining decision maker for me in so many ways. Wow. And it's just it's just a hard thing. And so, you know, now that I have said... Sorry, everybody, I'm going to have to stop doing this or I'm going to get to like 45 and literally burn everything down. (laughs) I'm trying to drive away or drive away and not look back. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out a new, you know, how do I just live according to the values that I have? And I feel like I don't know if I can make that work financially, but that's the experiment that I'm undertaking now. And, And like at least once a week. I promise Chad and myself and everyone who cares about me, if this doesn't work, I'll go get a job. I promise. Like, it's fine. <laughs> it's so silly. FYI, I'm not getting a job, Nicholas. I have a job. I have two jobs I really like. It's the funny paradox inside. Our relationship is like, it's so funny. We would have conversations. And I will say what motivated me and what I noticed immediately, especially after we moved to Paducah, is like the more money I earned – the better our relationship got, the less stressed Nicholas got, and the happier I was. Not because I had this money, but, like, it just – it opened up this other realm of sort of problem-solving because you can just, like, start throwing money and stuff, which is awesome, and all these things. And, you know, because I think it is tremendously stressful to be a primary breadwinner. Like, I have only – there was only about six months where I really didn't earn anything since our children had been born. But, I mean, I wasn't earning very much. I've always sort of continuously earned more, but I think that was so fascinating if I look back on our like kind of conversations and our interactions about this is that it was him simultaneously telling me like money is so important. We have to get the money. We have to pay the bills, money, money, money. But like, he's so funny. If something goes wrong or like if I have a, if I used to, when I did a lot of social media consulting, I've had a client that was like made to me, he'd be like, quit it. We don't need it. Forget them. You can quit. You just quit tomorrow. You don't have to do that. <laughs> Like, you're mixed messages, man. Like, but it's so, I think he felt like we're all in with you. Like, you're doing what's going to make you happy. So you might as well do what makes you happy. You know what I mean? Like, you just might as well be, if it's not working, switch it up. Like, there's no, there. why do this? Why do this to yourself? 
which is always sort of this kind of conflicting message I've felt inside our relationship. But I'm like, I'm, I'm here for it. I like it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't get mixed messages from Chad about money. Um, I just understand that it's important to him and stressful for him. And I'm doing my best to ease that stress as we make this turn. But yeah, there are no mixed messages over here. <laughs> it's, it's a very consistent theme in our relationship. Well, listen, this is what I tell people. If we, when we first got married, if Nicholas Holland and I had not made a budget in that first year, we would have for sure been divorced by now because I am not that way anymore. And I think this is an interesting conversation to have about money as well. Like when we started the relationship, when we first got together, I grew up in a family. My stepfather's primary love language is purchases. And so I grew up in this place where like when you love someone, you buy them all the things. If you do not buy them all the things, you very clearly do not love them. Whereas my husband's last and least and most hated love language is purchases. So I was like a total spender. My parents are spenders. I was a spender. Nicholas wants to watch it stack up. And we had so many fights about money. Oh, my God. So many fights. You know, I think the hardest thing about money and marriage and long-term committed relationships in general is that I really believe this is an area that is ripe for change mm-hmm. as much as any other area. Like, you you can try to have conversations about your values around money, But you learn so much over time about what money means and doesn't mean. And I think your personal energy level that you have for work and for going out and getting money really changes. And I just think about like when we first got married, I was super excited about us getting getting a big house together, you know. And we had we were totally on the same page about buying a house because I had a really great job. Banks were willing to lend us so much money. Oh, my God. Did you have that moment? It's so funny. The first time you buy a house and you, like, go to the little calculator or they, like, they offer you a thing and you're like, wait, how much money? Like, they're willing to give you so much money. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But luckily, my husband was, like, immediately was like, these are fake numbers. These are not real numbers. Do not read these numbers as if they are real. Cut them in half. And I'm like, So we were in the same place. We both looked at each other and we were like, this bank does not love us. That's what this means. They don't love us. They don't care what kind of life we have. So we're not doing that. But we got a really nice house. And that was really exciting to me. And it was really important to me to have a really nice house. Today, I would happily downsize. I don't care at all about like a lot of the trappings of money. The more I understand how much wealth is out there in the world, the less interested I am in being part of that wealth. It's not that I want, I value that we have been very comfortable. I value that we haven't been afraid of something happening that sent us into a devastating spot. I don't need to make more money in my life than I have for the past 11 years. If I could figure out a way to just replace that income, I do not want to be chasing money my whole life. And I would not have said that when we got married. And that's hard. Like in that way, I feel like I've kind of changed the game on Chad. And I think we change the game on each other a lot in long-term relationships, but money to me is one where that's that's a pretty significant change, and it's one that's likely to change a lot for both of us over the course of our relationship. The only money thing I get hung up on, like, we're, so Nicholas and I are doing the year without shopping, we were talking about the other day, and I said, I don't really feel that different. Like, I just don't. I don't shop a lot. I don't feel deprived. 
Like, I just, I have really, it's almost a month in, I just haven't thought about it. And he was like, I feel liberated because he's really driven by a deal because he's motivated by money. He loves to save money. And so used to, he would just be consumed like, oh, we might need this one day and this is such a great deal. Should I get it? And now he's just free because he's just like, well, it doesn't matter. I can't, I'm not shopping. So it doesn't matter how great of a deal it is or if we could use it one day. I'm not buying things. So moving on. And he feels like he's gained so much back. But what's so funny about that is one that I don't feel the same way and I don't see things like I realize like how little I think about money with regards to purchases where I get hung up on money is travel man the more money you have the more travel you can do like I would not think about money at all if it wasn't for how freaking expensive airplane tickets were that's what always catches me where I'm like man I wish I could win the lottery just so I could travel as much as I want yeah Chad loves a deal also I don't understand it at all I appreciate it it's made for it, we've been able to do a lot of things that we wouldn't have otherwise because he is so great with deals. But I just, to me, that is thinking about money so much more than I want to think about money. So much more. And I'm struggling in setting up my coaching practice because I don't ever want money to be an obstacle for anyone. Like if I can help someone, I don't want to worry about how much money it's costing them. Right. And then that gets reinforced for me because the number of people who would like to work with me versus the number of people willing to pay to work with me. There's like a huge delta there, (laughs) you know? And meanwhile, I have a client who's been saying to me, like, you should be charging more, (laughs) you know? And so it's like all over the place for me with money. And what, what I am grateful for right now is the space in my life with the begrudging support of my husband for whom (laughs) this is very, very stressful to just figure this out, you know, because even if I can't make it a full-time, you know, I feel like I have 10 jobs right now (laughs) and there's still nowhere near the income that I was making. If I can't cobble that together and figure it out, at least I am getting very clear on how I feel about money and what it means in my life and what it doesn't mean. It is. It's so hard. It's, I mean, it's just a constant trade-off thinking about, because so often for me, I think that money is an, is a trade-off for time. So I can I can spend money and save the time. I can spend money and save the time. A book I read a, a while back that came highly recommended is a book called Your Money or Your Life. The problem is, and this book really walks you through it, is you think you're spending money to save time, but every dollar you spend is time because you had to spend time to earn it. And so they have you do these, like, this calculus, which unfortunately is very hard to do if you're a freelancer and freelancing among across a a wide spectrum like I do to figure out like how much your hour is worth. So you think like, do I want this cup of coffee if I'm going to have to spend 45 minutes? Hopefully nobody's spending 45 minutes to pay for even a $5 cup of coffee. But you know what I mean? Like to pay for that. What does it mean? What am I, what's it? It is time. Because so often I think that's the trade-off and that's what you're talking about with money is the difference between time and energy. Like my husband says, you can have it cheap, you can have it easier, you can have it perfect. What is it? Perfect, good, perfect, cheap, Or quick. That's it. Perfect, cheap, or quick. Then you can pick one. Yeah. Chad usually says you can pick two of those. He says the same thing. <laughs> they have a lot in common about money. I, I feel like the two of them. <laughs> yeah. But see, because Nicholas grew up in a family of five, and there were times he vividly remembers as a child realizing that there was that, like, being told, don't ask for anything. We do not have the money. Like, he remembers that. And I... I kind of vaguely felt that, but I don't remember being like it being as earth shattering as kind of he does. I mean, earth shattering. Nicholas doesn't consider anything earth shattering. It's just not his personality. Whereas I think everything is earth shattering. But he, like, it, it definitely had an impact on him. The feeling like that there might not be enough money, and I don't, you know, I don't want my kids to to feel that. But I also, 
I guess I just kind of push back against that too because I also don't want my kids to think there are all, there is always enough. Right. I want them to understand that there are limits. That's a positive thing to understand and to learn. I think so too. And the, the thing that I really don't want Jane and Ellen to struggle with is is that sense of money as validation. I think the best thing about the last month for me has been realizing that I can do a great job and let that stand alone. And it yeah. doesn't matter if somebody wants to give me a bonus or thinks that I am overcompensated or undercompensated. I can just sit here and know that I did really well at something. And I want them to have that knowledge about grades and about money, right? Oh, that sense of right. I'm okay. Yeah. It's so hard. And I think money is just another manifestation of our desire to tie every amount of human worth to our behavior and to our productivity and to our results. And I, you know, I struggle with this all the time as a parent, and it's so hard to push back against that. I struggle with that as a human being. And I think money is just another indicator of that we want the roles that we inhibit and the the results we produce to be indicative of our value as human beings instead of just deciding that we all have inherent worth as children of God. Probably not going to crack that nut today, but we want to continue this conversation about pressures that we put on ourselves, whether it's regards to money or work or family. It's something Beth and I have been talking a lot about outside the podcast. So we will continue this conversation next week. And next up, we're going to leave with an inspiring moment for you to carry throughout your week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I saw this poem shared by Elizabeth Gilbert, and I thought I would share it with all of you. It's by Tricia Elliott, and it's called Suturing. A shrew moves in moonlight, tracking across the unbroken snow. You have felt this small, a lone heart pounding in the darkness. Claim your trail. Open the frozen meadow like the shrew. As it rediscovers home, it sutures all things together. Power is not correlated with size. Even the smallest journey reshapes this world. We will be back with you next Wednesday for another episode. Between now and then, you can catch us on Pantu Politics. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Please rate and review The Nuanced Life on Apple Podcast Player. It helps new people to find The Nuanced Life, and we really appreciate your support. You can follow The Nuanced Life on Twitter at The Nuanced Life, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Thank you so much to Dante Lima, the composer and performer of our theme music.